All right, well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. If you're just now joining us, what we do is each semester we basically take a subject in theology, which is the study of God, and we really drill down deep into that subject. And so this semester we've been studying the application of redemption. What does that mean? Last week we talked about how Christ purchased our salvation through His life and death and resurrection, and this semester we're talking about how you get those benefits. So uh, last semester was that Jesus got the good stuff, and this semester is how you get the good stuff from Jesus. And so that's what we're talking about. And we've been talking about some really heady things so far. We've been talking about election and reprobation, and we did some stuff through church history, and we talked about regeneration and unconditional, uh, or I'm sorry, unconditional election, I already said that, uh, you know, irresistible grace and some of these other things. Uh, today is actually going to be pretty practical, just like last week was. So right now we're talking about conversion. Okay, we're talking about conversion, and uh, last week Jeff kicked us off in talking about one part of conversion, which is faith, and today we're going to talk about the other part of conversion, which is repentance. Now, I want to be really clear here. These are not things that happen apart from one another. It's not like if you decided to become a Christian last week, you had faith, and then now you wait a whole week, and you come and you learn about repentance, and then you repent. That's not how it works. When you repent and when you have faith, those things are happening at the same time. Okay? So I've drawn a very crude, terrible image because I'm a terrible drawer. Now let me, I cannot emphasize enough that I in no way mean to be disrespectful to Jesus in this drawing. Okay? I'm just not very good at drawing. Okay? So please know that my heart in this is good. But uh, one of the things we talked about is how repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin. Okay? They're two sides of the same coin. So we can mentally, as we study them, we can separate them, but practically they always happen together, that repentance and faith go together. So I'll give you an example. When you give somebody a high five, let's pretend you're the kind of person that still gives high fives, okay? And you give someone a high five. How many actions are happening? Just one. There it is. I saw some people in the back. Boom, high five. One high five is being given. But you can look and realize that there are really two sides to that high five. There's your hand and there's the other person's hand, Okay? So what we're doing is though it's only one act of a high five, we can separate out and look at these two different aspects. And that's what we're doing when we're talking about conversion. Conversion contains all these other things that happen before you actually become a believer in Christ. You've been elected, God's regenerated your heart, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but uh, what we're specifically talking about today is conversion, and we're looking at the other side of uh, that high five, if you will, which is repentance, okay? So here is the drawing that I want to show you, okay? I know it's terrible. Again, I apologize. When you are lost and don't know Christ, notice that your back is turned to Jesus. Notice Jesus has a beard. The Bible says that. They pulled out his beard, okay? Be having a beard is godly. Next. <laughs> so notice that before you become a Christian, your back is turned on Christ, and you are loving your sin. Now, it doesn't look like it, right? You're angry and you're sad because you haven't found fulfillment in Christ, but you have your sin and you love your sin. You've got your big bag of sin and your big sin bag includes things like pride and hatred of other people and greed and all these other kind of things, and your back is turned on Christ and you're facing your sin. Well, what happens uh, at conversion, I'm going to draw this the best I can. Your hand didn't get lost in the sin bag here, okay? What happens in conversion is you turn You're facing Christ. Again, he's doing all of this, by the way, and converting you. And you turn your back on sin. So notice that these aren't two separate things. They're two separate concepts, but they happen at the same time. So to be facing sin is to be turned away from Christ. To turn to Christ is to turn away from sin and face Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're separating them mentally in here today, though they're not actually separate. It's kind of like when we talk about God's attributes when we talk about God being loving or wrathful or whatever it is, God is just one simple substance. 
So when we're doing that, we're separating those things out so we can better understand them, but it's not as though God is like just all these little compartments of different attributes. He's just God, okay? And so in the same way, this is one act that involves two components, you know, 1A, faith, and 1B, repentance, and they happen at the same time. So with that in mind, let's give a definition here. This comes from uh, a theologian named Wayne Grudem who wrote a very helpful introduction to systematic theology textbook. He says this, uh, that repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. That's a pretty good definition. Notice the different components there, okay? A heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Not that you'll never sin again, not that you will never struggle, but the idea is repentance involves this idea of fighting sin, of this commitment to war against sin. Okay? So a few things about repentance. Let's start with this first one here. The first thing I want you to see is the necessity of repentance for conversion. You are not a Christian if there is no repentance. Repentance is necessary for salvation. Jeff talked about this last week, that there was a uh, movement in theology uh, a couple decades ago, uh, what is called cheap grace theology, which is the idea that you could have Christ as Savior but not as Lord. So somehow you could be a believer but not actually repent, not actually submit to Him, not actually follow Him. And that's not Christianity. What was weird is that people in this uh, movement were saying, well, we're just trying to hold to faith alone, and they didn't realize that none of the Reformers held the view that they were holding. All of the Reformers clearly held that you have to repent. But I want you to see the necessity of repentance for conversion. Psalm 7, 12 through 13, this was already the case in the Old Testament. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. W-H-E-T, that means sharpen, okay? Sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. So even in the Old Testament, there was this idea that if you don't repent, you get the judgment of God. But if you do repent, then God gives grace, okay? You see this a lot also in the New Testament. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice that as Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom, an essential element of that is repentance, okay, is repentance. Luke 13, 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And giving an analogy of those who did not repent and perish, uh, you're told here that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 24, 46 through 47. And said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Notice that in this gospel presentation, this gospel of the kingdom, this kerugma uh, that you have, uh, this idea of repentance. Sometimes the gospel can just be summarized as repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 2, 37 through 38. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Notice that. That's fascinating, okay? That as they're hearing the gospel message, you have this idea of being born again. You have this idea of regeneration. There's already something going on in their dead hearts spiritually, okay? Uh, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Notice the importance of repentance, okay? Acts 3.13, I'm sorry, 3.19, Repent, therefore, and turn back. Notice that the idea of repentance has to do with this idea of turning. That's why I use this uh, little analogy here where you turn from sin and therefore turn to Christ. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Revelation 2.5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Now, this is Jesus talking to churches talking to Christians, and he's telling them to repent, okay? 
You still repent post-conversion. Notice this. Do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay? So what I want you to see here is the essential nature of repentance for salvation. You are saved by grace through faith alone, but in the biblical idea of faith is this idea of repentance as well, that you cannot turn to Christ without turning away from sin, and when you are facing sin, you are turned away from Christ. So notice that these, again, are two sides of the same coin. Uh, First church that I was at, uh, where I was the pastor, was a little uh, country church up near Paris, Texas. Anybody here know where Paris, Texas is? Amen. Okay, so up in Paris, Texas, and we had a little Bible study that we were doing in my house, and uh, we had a lady there that was in her 70s, a sweet lady named Betty, and uh, right in the middle of the study, we were talking about repentance, and right in the middle of the study, she stopped me, and she said, Pastor Zach, I have never repented for my sin, ever. She said, I assumed I was a Christian because I'd been in church my whole life. I've always gone on Sundays. I've tried to live morally. This is the first time I've realized that I've never really repented and never trusted Christ, and we're like, great, this is exciting. And so she repented, and she accepted Christ right there, and we got to, uh, uh, to baptize her the next weekend. And so uh, just notice the importance there of repentance, okay, that you are forsaking sin. To give your allegiance to one na- God will not allow you to be a double agent. If you want to give your allegiance to one kingdom, you have to renounce a former kingdom. This is interesting where uh, when they used to do baptisms in the uh, early church, they would have certain baptismal formulas, and one of the questions they would ask is, do you renounce Satan and all his works? Because they realized that to turn to Christ and his kingdom is to turn away from a kingdom of darkness, that those, uh, those ideas go together, okay? Next, look at this, the continuation of repentance throughout the Christian life, okay? Let me ask you this question. Is faith a one-time act, or is faith something that is continual in your Christian life? What is it? Yes. Yes, there's a moment where you didn't have faith and then you do have faith. You go from being lost to being a Christian. But notice that that faith is also continual. You didn't just have faith one time in the past and now you don't trust Jesus at all. You continue to have faith in Christ. Am I right? The same is true with repentance. There is a moment, there is a one-time act when you repent and you trust Christ where you have repented but it also continues throughout the Christian life. You're also continually in a state of repentance in the same way that you're continually in a state of faith, that when you sin throughout the Christian life, there is sorrow, there is repentance, there is asking God for renewal, for cleansing, etc. Okay? Let me give you a few, uh, a few passages here. Psalm 32.5, okay? Again, this was written for believers to sing in the corporate assembly and these kind of things. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. So notice there's this idea even in the Old Testament of repentance, that repentance is continual. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but, uh, but he who confesses and forsakes them. Notice the idea that repentance is not just confessing sin, it's forsaking it, Okay. Confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Matthew 6, 12, when Jesus is teaching us specifically how we should pray, one of the things that we're to pray is, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice, that's the kind of thing that we would be praying possibly every day. The early church would say uh, the Lord's Prayer multiple times, okay? 1 John 1, 9 through 10, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Revelation 3.19. Look at this one. This is talking about uh, those who are uh, believers, okay? Those whom I love, this is Jesus, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. 
Jesus is saying that even in the Christian life, there are times where you have to repent because you're walking in some sort of sin, and because God loves you, he disciplines you, and therefore you repent. Martin Luther's got a famous phrase here where he says, uh, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, okay? To be one of repentance. Now, why do we repent post-conversion if God's already forgiven us for our sins, we'll get to that in just a second. So if you're thinking that, that's, that's coming in the notes. But I want to say this. We have a tendency to think that repentance is a bad thing. But repentance is a good thing. Like if you're walking towards a cliff and someone says, stop walking towards the cliff and turn around or you're going to die. You should be like, "Woo! thank you. That is a good thing. That is a grace. We have a tendency to think that repentance is bad. You know why? Because then we have to admit that we are not the hero of our lives. Then we have to admit that we are not our own saviors. We have to admit that we fail and we fall and we make mistakes and we're broken and we're sinful humans. Repentance is an act of humility and it is a good thing. When God grants you repentance, that is his grace to you. To turn away and not fall off the cliff is always good. Okay? Repentance is good. Repentance is safe. Unrepentance is dangerous. Unrepentance is not safe. You with me? So don't think of repentance as a bad thing just because you have to admit that you're a failure. The Bible screams that. Just agree with the Bible. Okay? Your hero is Christ. I have found that the more someone is able to repent, the more that someone is able to be honest about their sins, the more they really believe that Jesus is the hero of the story and not them. Okay? Let's talk about some parts of repentance. Okay? I've included four of these. Parts of repentance. Now, this, is, this last one I think is especially powerful, but let me give you these kind of four parts of repentance. Repentance includes four things. Knowledge, disposition, action, and acceptance. Okay, what do I mean by each of these? First of all, the first thing you have to have to repent is you have to have an understanding intellectually that what you've done is wrong. Okay? If you think it's totally fine just to murder people and you just keep murdering people, you're never going to repent. Okay? So the first thing you have to have is knowledge that what you're actually doing is sin. Okay? This has happened multiple times in my life where I'm reading the Bible and all of a sudden it says that something is sinful that I've never really noticed before and I'm like, I've been doing that my whole life. That's the first step of repentance is having a knowledge of what God says is and is not sin. Okay? And so uh, that's step one, the knowledge. Now number two when it comes to repentance is the disposition that you should have an internal sorrow for and hatred for sin. Okay? That there is something that if you're a Christian and you know that you've rebelled against God, there's something in your heart that doesn't like it. Now listen, there are times where that sorrow will be felt more, and there are times where that sorrow is just barely a little flicker. But one of the evidences of regeneration is that you're convicted when you sin, that you hate your sin. So the first step of repentance is knowing that it's wrong. If you don't know that it's wrong, you won't do anything else. Now, once you know that it's wrong, there should be a disposition change where you realize you've offended the infinite Trinitarian God of the universe and because of that, you deserve uh, wrath, but because of Christ, your wrath has been absorbed, and therefore, you are loved by God. Okay? There has to be this disposition to hate sin. The more you realize God loves you, the more you will hate your sin. Those two ideas go together. If you don't feel much sorrow for sin, the way that you'll conquer that is by, not by trying to feel more sorry, not by doing what Luther would do and take a whip and just hitting your own back to show how sorry you are. What you will need to do is you'll need to realize how much God loves you. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. If you don't hate your sin, it's because you don't realize how great God is. So the way that you grow in that is by seeing how great God is, not by trying to hate yourself or something like that. Okay? Number three, it involves action, a decision to turn away from sin. Okay? It's not the case that when you repent, you will sometimes never commit that sin again. Sometimes you will never commit that sin again. Most of the time, though, it's a sin you're going to commit again. So that doesn't mean that if you've ever committed again, you weren't really sorry, you weren't really repentant. But here's what I'm trying to say. 
Repentance involves this idea that you are going to fight sin. That's the idea, okay? Not whether or not you're ever going to sin again. We're broken sinners. We will sin until we die. But whether or not you've decided to actually fight sin, to war against it. So if somebody comes to Parkway and they say, uh, I would consider myself a gay Christian, can I be a member here at Parkway? Okay? What I will then ask him is, it depends what you mean. Are you someone who loves Jesus and you're tempted towards homosexuality, but you agree that that is sinful, you hate it, you don't want to follow it, you want to be obedient to God, and you will commit to fighting it? Then yes, welcome to the struggle just like anybody else that struggles with anything. But if you say, well, no, by gay Christian, I mean that I'm going to continue acting in this sin because that's who I am, then I'm going to say, well, then you're not a Christian because Jesus demands repentance from any of your sin, heterosexual, homosexual, stealing, lying, whatever it is, Whatever, you're all born sinful, we're all born broken and sinful, that you have to lay that down and you have to be transformed by the gospel. The difference of my answer to that person will depend on repentance. Are they fighting sin? Do they hate sin? Or do they allow their sin just to own them? Okay? Do they allow their sin just to own them? Do they go down without a fight? Okay? And then the last one, this is something a lot of people don't think about when it comes to repentance, but it is absolutely essential. Look at this last one. The belief that you have been forgiven. This is a step that most of us leave out when we repent. Let's say I stub my toe on the coffee table and I say a curse word. And I realize that no unwholesome thing should come out of my mouth, as the Bible would say. I need to repent. So there's the knowledge, okay, I've done something that has offended God. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This isn't just a mouth problem, it's a heart problem. And therefore, I then need to repent. God, I'm sorry that I have sinned against you. I need to realize that I need to fight that. I need to work on having a a cleaner mouth or whatever the sin is that you're struggling with. And then the last one is this. I need to know that God has forgiven me. That's huge. I think we have a tendency sometimes to repent of things we've already repented for. We have a tendency to think that God will forgive us based upon how much we hate ourselves. Uh, We have a tendency to do all these kind of things. And you need to realize when you repent, you need to mentally and cognitively think about the fact, God loves me. God's forgiven me. It's not as though God sees me and there's still this asterisk by me. I'm a stained Christian. That God sees me as a Christian with no asterisk. He separated my sins as as, as far away as the east is from the west. Okay? This is a step, I think, of repentance that a lot of us uh, miss. I think we miss that a lot. Okay? As I jokingly said a couple weeks ago, repentance is a shower, not a bath. What do I mean by that? Baths are gross. You just sit in this gross human soup, and it's disgusting. You sit there, and you wallow in it. You're like, oh, here's all my dirt. I'm going to sit here for 30 minutes. Okay? Here's a candle. That smells nice, but the water is gross. Okay? It's a shower. You're clean and you move on, okay? You don't keep sitting in it. You're clean, and you move on, okay? Confessing our sins to other people. Let's talk about this. This is something that uh, a lot of Protestants don't understand. So we talked about this, that there are three main branches of Christianity, Catholic, uh, Eastern Orthodox, or Greek Orthodox, and then uh, Protestant. Uh, One of the things that we have a tendency not to understand is why Roman Catholics do confession. So in Roman Catholicism, you go to a priest, uh, and you confess your sins to them. They are not forgiving you of your sins, okay? Only Christ can do that. What they are doing is they're speaking a word of absolution saying that God has forgiven you. In Roman Catholicism, the priest serves as step four in those parts of repentance that I just mentioned. It's someone to confirm to you, I want you to remember that you are forgiven. Now, they make you do these other things, like do some Hail Marys and everything, and then it'll be okay. So that part's off. But there is this idea that uh, there is something that our souls need 
we need to know that God has forgiven us, okay? Now, let's talk about confessing our sins to other people because in a Protestant system, we don't do it like in Roman Catholicism, okay? It is God and God alone who can forgive you for your sins. When you repent, you go to God, right? Go to God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for forgiveness of your sins. So why then do we today as Protestants confess our sins one to another? It's not for forgiveness, okay? It's so that we can be helped, so that we can be encouraged, so somebody can say God loves you, so somebody can hold you accountable. To quote Ulrich Zwingli, the third man of the Reformation, confession to a neighbor is not for remission of sins but for counseling, okay? So one of the things that if you grew up in a uh, Protestant church uh, that you might be unfamiliar with is this idea that the Bible commands us to confess our sins not just to God. That's how you're forgiven. But we're also commanded to confess our sins one to another. That might be new to you. So when we first uh, went through this kind of transition at Parkway about two years ago, I was talking to one uh, gentleman in particular that said, and I quote, I have never confessed any of my sins to any person. And I thought, oh man, that's a problem. So I want to give you some passages that tell us that we are to confess our sins to each other, okay? James 5.16 says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The idea here is if somebody is sick and they're going in to have the elders pray for them and uh, if they're wanting healing, one of the prerequisites to that is that they confess their sins one to another. Notice that. That's pretty powerful. You ever thought to yourself, maybe this prayer isn't being answered because I'm not confessing my sin. Look at Acts 19, 18 through 19. We see an example of public confession. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, that's witchcraft, okay? That's not like this. That's not like illusions. That's witchcraft, all right? That's what they're saying, okay? Their magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which is a lot. But notice the public nature of their repentance. They're not just saying, dear God, I'm sorry. They're now saying these evil things that I had, these witchcraft scrolls, I'm going to burn them, I renounce them, I hate them, everybody, I'm a Christian. Notice the public nature of that, okay? In the Psalms, we have multiple examples of people confessing their sins publicly before the congregation. So think of Psalm 51. Who knows what Psalm 51 is about? What is it? Yes, 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 yeah, created me a clean heart. It's a, it's a reference where David is talking about his adultery with Bathsheba, and he asked God for grace. He asked God for repentance. Now, think about how weird it is that that is a public song in the corporate assembly in Israel. How many people would get up and like, so Tim gets up there on Sunday morning, and he's like, I've cheated on my wife, but God is good. You'd be like, what is happening, right? But that's what's going on in Israel, okay? There's this public confession uh, of sin. 1 Corinthians 5.12 and Matthew 18.15 through 20, these are about church discipline, assume that we as Christians are supposed to know about sin in each other's lives so we can offer kind words of rebuke and even, if necessary, practice church discipline. So notice the whole idea of practicing church discipline means that we have to know about sin, that sin is not just a private issue, it's a public issue. That's not something we hardly ever talk about, that your sin, though God is not angry at somebody for your sin, your sin can affect other people, okay? It can affect a congregation. A lot of these churches in Revelation that Jesus is warning that they need to repent probably doesn't mean that every single person in the church is unfaithful, but it means there are some in the church that are unfaithful, and therefore Jesus is removing their lampstand. He's shutting down the church, okay? Matthew 5, 23 through 24 tells us to go reconcile with our brother when we sin and to leave our gift at the altar until we've done so. This implies that other Christians will often know your failures, okay? Again, I'm just trying to hit home this idea that your sin is, your faith is personal, but it is not private, Okay? The same is true with your repentance. 
And so that's what I'm trying to hit here, that yes, you're already forgiven. Yes, God alone forgives you. No, you don't have to go to a priest or something like that. You have a great high priest who stands between you and God, Jesus, the God-man, okay? But I want you to see that there is something about growing in your, your Christian walk of confessing your sins to others. In 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5, Paul tells the church to remove a sinning brother from the congregation publicly. Church discipline assumes public knowledge of sin. Now, in addition to all these things that would say to confess your sins one to another and that other people are supposed to know when you struggle, we also have a bunch of passages in the Bible that encourage us to help each other out in our Christian walk. And I think that involves this idea of knowing sins as well. Luke 17, 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. Okay, notice that we rebuke, we correct, we give loving uh, guidance uh, to one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Hebrews 10.24-25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Is there a command in the Bible, by the way, that says that you can't just not be a part of a church? Yeah, right here. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, the day of salvation, the day of Christ's return, whatever it might be, drawing near. Okay? So, repentance is necessary for salvation. Repentance involves this idea not just of saying you're sorry, that's just you using words, but actually fighting sin and knowing that God loves you and has forgiven you. Uh, And repentance involves this idea of getting help from other people. So again, in the example I use, let's say you're someone who stubs your toe and says a curse word. That's probably one of those things where you just repent and you walk in righteousness and you move on. There are other more serious sins, though, that you could commit that you need to repent not only to God, but you need to go to a brother or sister maybe in your community group and you need to say, hey, I just want you to know I'm really struggling in this area. I'm habitually falling into sin in this area. Will you help me? Because God wants to use the church to help you. He's not given everybody every spiritual gift. He's given different people different gifts so that we might be the body. I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And so God wants it to be where you need others. Okay? We hate that as Americans. We love pulling ourselves up our own bootstraps, and we love doing like Lone Ranger Christianity. God hates that. God has made it to where you cannot even fulfill his commands by yourself. How do you fulfill the command to uh, confess your sins one to another by yourself? How do you get baptized by yourself? How do you take communion by yourself? How do you not forsake the gathering and meeting together by yourself? You see, you need other people to be able to be obedient to Christ. God has made it that way. You need his church. Now, let's talk about some questions about repentance. A few random questions. I've got 10 of them here. When I first repent and ask Christ for salvation, do I have to explicitly mention all the sins I've ever done? No. Okay? How would you do that? Do you know how long your repentance would take? How many times a day do you think you sin? Every stray thought, every time you're not thankful, every time you're not loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, every time you're selfish, every time you're not loving other people as you love yourself, every time you're committing a sin. That's a lot. Good luck mentioning all of those. Your repentance would take longer than the years you've been alive. Okay? And so would mine. And so, no, the idea is when you first come to Christ, the idea is you're saying, I can't remember all my sins, but wherever there has been an infraction against you, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? Okay? Again, when the Bible says that we don't even know how to pray rightly, that the Spirit has to pray on our behalf because we don't know how to pray, the same is true with repentance. We don't do anything perfectly. Have faith perfectly, pray perfectly, repent perfectly. It is God's grace of why we're saved, not how good we are at faith or how good we are at repentance. Number two, if at the moment of salvation we are forgiven for all our sins, past, present, and future, then why do we still repent post-conversion? Hmm, 
That's a good question. Now, first of all, I want it to be acknowledged that when you repent and you trust Christ, you're not just forgiven for all your sins up till that point. That's how a lot of people think. That I'm forgiven for my past, and now I've been given a blank slate, but I better not mess it up as I move forward. No. All your sins, when Christ died for you, were future, by the way. Okay? So when Christ dies for you, he's dying for all your sins to you, which is past, present, and future. Okay? So all your sins are atoned for and covered by Christ. It's not that just you're forgiven for your past, but you better do your best now. All your sins have been covered, and you now receive the righteousness of Christ. You are seen as perfect as Christ. It's not just that you're forgiven and you're a blank slate. You're forgiven, you're a blank slate, and then that blank slate has a big cross marked through it. Okay? That's the idea. Now, why do you repent post-conversion if you're already ultimately forgiven? Here's the best example I can give from marriage. Let's say, so first of all, I'm married. This is important to know for this illustration. Uh, my wife is Katie. She is very, very gracious. She is the most patient woman I've ever met, okay, because she has to deal with me, and I'm not an easy man to deal with. Now, we're married, and let's say I sin against my wife. I say something insensitive. Uh, I am being neglectful. I'm not really listening to her, hearing how her day is. I'm just kind of wanting to zone out, whatever it is, and I sin against my wife, okay? At any point, do we stop being married? Yes or no? No. But what do I need to do to continue to cause the relationship to flourish? I need to repent. So I come before her and I say, Lord Katie, I have sinned against thee because I am a wretch. Will you, like the man who goes to the temple, will you have mercy on me, a sinner? And she says yes, and she takes her scepter and, and touches my shoulder, and I'm forgiven. Now, when we got married, that was the time where we actually got married. From that point on, we were husband and wife, okay? That status doesn't change just because we get into a fight or have a problem. But what those fights and problems do is they cause bumps in our relationships. They cause it not to be as joyful as it could be. The same is true in your Christian walk. When you repent and trust in Christ, you're forgiven, your status is righteous, you and God from that point on out are cool, okay? But you will sin against God. You will have these speed bumps, which will inhibit you from understanding the full joy of God, which will inhibit your relationship with God, which will cause you a lot of pain. So when you're repenting post-conversion, you're not doing it because God hasn't ultimately forgiving you. You're going and you're saying, God, I know you've already married me. I know you already love me. I know everything's okay, but I have rebelled against you. Would you forgive me? I'm still in need of your grace. I want our relationship to continue to flourish. Will you help? That's why you repent post-conversion, okay? Your status doesn't change, but there are times where God can withhold blessing. There are times when God can discipline you. You're told not to grieve the Spirit, and so uh, repentance post-conversion is important. Now look at number three. How is actual repentance different than worldly sorrow? 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay? Being sorry that you got caught, or being mad that things didn't go well, or having overwhelming sorrow is not repentance. Look at me. This is really important for some of you. Repentance is not self-hate, okay? Repentance is not you trying to atone for your own sins by telling God how sorry you are, as if you can just show him how sorry you are, then he will forgive you, okay? Repentance has to do with you trusting Christ. What is the difference between condemnation and conviction? If you're a Christian, there's no condemnation for you. If you're feeling condemned, that's the enemy, or that's your own flesh, what does that feel like? It feels weighty. It feels dark. It feels crushing. It makes you want to curl up in a ball away from Christ. 
Conviction is gentle and loving and sweet, and it makes you want to run to Christ. Do you see the difference? Okay. Jesus says that a smoldering wick he won't snuff out, that a bruised reed he will not break. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Conviction is sweet. It makes you want to run to God, whereas condemnation is that crushing weight. You're awful. You're going to hell. You're no, there's no way you're a Christian. Why don't you try harder? Why don't you do better? That is the enemy, period. God doesn't talk to his children in that tone of voice. Say it that way. Okay. Number four, how do I know if I'm sorry enough for my sin when I repent? Okay. Here's the answer. You're never sorry enough. God's just gracious. Do you really think that you can feel the amount of sorrow you should feel for offending an infinite being? You'd have to have infinite sorrow, which you can't do. So the idea here, again, is that there needs to be some sort of sorrow for your sin, but you're never sorry enough. But guess what? God is gracious. Your faith is imperfect. Your repentance is imperfect. You don't know how to pray, so just sit back and enjoy the ride because God is doing the stuff. Okay? Number five, how often do I need to repent? There's not going to be like a precise answer to this, right? There are sometimes throughout the day where you'll do something you shouldn't do and you'll think, oh man, I feel convicted. And you should probably repent right then. There are other times where maybe you wait till the end of the day and you kind of think through the places where you failed and you repent and you give those things to God and know that God loves you, okay? So there's not like a a set, I'm not going to give you a number, right? We're not Muslims, we don't pray five times a day facing Mecca or something like this. But I think that it would be wise to at least repent once a day, if not more, okay? So one of the things that I do is at the end of the day, as I'm praying before I go to bed, I think through the different places where I have failed, I repent of those things, receive God's mercy, and then I go to bed, okay? Number six, do I need to name every single sin every time I repent? Again, you can't. So let me give you an encouraging psalm here, okay? Psalm 19, 12 through 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from, what's the next phrase? Hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. So notice he's both. He's saying, uh, one, forgive me for my sins that I've done presumptuously. Forgive me for my sins I've done intentionally. But I also realize I probably sinned a bunch today that I don't even remember. So would you forgive me for those hidden faults as well? So I think what you do is the ones that immediately come to mind, you repent of. And then at the end, it's more of a, and God, if I've sinned in any other way, you know it. Would you forgive me for that too? Would you forgive me for that too? Okay. Number seven, what happens if I die before I've repented of some sin? Uh, you're still a Christian. All your sins have been covered past, present, and future. It's not a Roman Catholic idea of extreme unction or something like that, so it's okay. You should repent of sin, but here's what I mean. Like, let's say you're driving in a car, and you're about to get into a wreck, and so you yell out a curse word right before you get into a wreck. That doesn't mean you're going to hell because the last thing you did is sin. Because the last thing you did was not sin. You actually committed a sin that had been forgiven. That's what you did, okay? So I only say that to say, yes, you should be repentant, but you don't need to have this idea. I've met some people that are just terrified that they're going to make some mistake, forget to repent, die, and then they're toast, right? As if that's how salvation works, okay? That would put salvation back in your hands. Yes, repent. I'm not saying if you're, if you're on your deathbed and you're told you have two days to live and you've been cheating on your wife for 30 years, you should repent. You should tell your wife. What I'm saying, though, is don't get in this weird Uh, like morbidly introspective, oh my gosh, I could have a brain aneurysm at any time and I forgot to mention back in third grade that I, that's not what I'm talking about, okay? Uh, Number eight, am I really repentant if I habitually struggle with some sin? Am I really repentant if I habitually struggle with some sin? I think that is a great question, okay? I think the answer to that is this. It depends on whether or not what you mean by the word struggle. 
If you are actively fighting against your sin and sometimes you fail, but you really do love Jesus, you really do hate your sin, and you just keep falling into it, but you're fighting it, I think that you're repentant. Again, I think repentance has far more to do with fighting sin than it does with how many times you commit a sin. Okay? If by struggle with some sin, though, you're saying, uh, I keep committing this sin and I take no action to try to fight it, it just owns me, then I'm going to say you're probably not a Christian. Jesus thinks that you should go to the extent of gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand instead of committing some sort of sin. So the idea is not that we should look all like pirates. The idea is that you need to do whatever you need to to fight sin because it's that dangerous and that scary, right? You have no idea how many young men I talk with, and they say, well, I have this struggle with looking at pornography, and I say, okay, great, let's get internet out of your house, and let's get you off of a smartphone. And they say, but that seems inconvenient. And I say, so is cutting off your hand and gouging out your eye. How badly do you want this? How badly do you want this? So, but yes, the reason I want to say that is I know that everyone in here probably struggles with certain sins, maybe even somewhat habitually. Are you fighting it? Do you really love Jesus and you're falling? Or do you just say, this is just who I am. I'm not even going to fight anymore. Who cares? Those are different, okay? Those are different. Next, number nine, do my sins only affect me or is there a corporate dimension to my sins? There is a corporate dimension to your sins. Not that your kids are guilty for your sin. The Bible's clear on that. Not that people should apologize for the sins of their ancestors. All of that's unbiblical, okay? The idea is I'm not being punished for my dad's sins or something like that. But those sins can affect other people. So I'll give you an example. If I go commit a crime, some sort of sin, and I go to jail, is God mad at Judah for my sin? He's not. But will Judah's life be radically altered in a negative way because daddy's not home and daddy's in jail? Yes, okay? Your sins do affect other people. There is a corporate element to the sin. The the Bible is much more corporate than we are as Americans. We are very individual, okay? So you have to realize that guilt is only to an individual for their sins, and all humanity generally because of Adam. But when it comes to punishment or things like that, there's a sense in which sometimes when God is disciplining you, it affects other people. Think about the fact that David, because of his sin, loses his son. God's not mad at his son. That's not punishment to the son. But God is disciplining David by taking his son's life, okay? There's a corporate dimension to your sins. If you have questions about that more, by the way, we have a blog called Is Generational Sin a Real Thing? The short answer is no, but you need to go read it and find out why, okay? And then lastly, where does making restitution play into the idea of repentance? Let me say something really strong. Your actions show what you really believe. So let's say you've committed some sort of sin that needs, where there needs to be restitution. There are times you just sin, you just need to repent between you and God, but there are other times where you've wronged somebody else and you need to go back to that person. Where does that play into repentance? Here's what you need to understand. You're forgiven by God first, and therefore, because you're forgiven, you seek restitution with other people. It's not that I have to get this restitution all settled before God will forgive me. It's a lot like salvation in that sense, okay? Salvation is not I do these good things and then God saves me. Salvation is God saves me and therefore I do all these good things. Do you understand the importance of that order? Restitution is the same way if you sin against some, some human, okay? That you repent and God loves you and you're forgiven and therefore you should go walk in obedience and make restitution. So let's say I rip off somebody at work and then I become a Christian. I should go back to that person and give them money back or whatever it might be. There's a great example of this of Zacchaeus. Everybody remember Zacchaeus in the, in the New Testament? Was he a tall man or was he wee? He was wee. He gets converted. He meets Jesus. He has Jesus over at his house. And because of Jesus' ministry and influence on, on him and the, the fact that he realizes who Christ is, he then says, 
that if I've ripped anybody off, I want to pay them back four times as much. He's going back to this Old Testament idea that I need to not only pay this back, but I need to go over and above what I've done because I've wronged this person. Notice the order. He meets Jesus, then he seeks restitution, not the other way around. It's not, if I go, for, if I go pay back all these people, then maybe God will forgive me. You need to understand that because you'll never seek out restitution with somebody unless you know that God already loves you. God's love and grace for you will be the fuel that causes you to seek restitution with other people. Okay? Lastly, and then Jeff's going to come up and answer all your difficult questions, I want to give you an illustration about repentance that I thought about while I was pulling weeds. Let me say something about my yard. I have no actual grass. There are certain kinds of yards that are grass. Bermuda, St. Augustine, that's okay to say Augustine there. It's St. Augustine if you're talking about the guy that's in heaven. It's St. Augustine if you're talking about what's in your, y- your yard, okay? And so uh, some people have different kinds of grass. I don't. I have a nice, like, small batch weed blend, okay? That's what it is. There's just not just one kind of weeds. There's, like, a bunch of different ones. Like, I'm learning stuff when I'm out there. It's like a science class, okay? And I realized this, uh, this last year, because we had moved into a new house, that I needed to uh, really get out there and pull some weeds. And as I was pulling weeds... I kept thinking about the idea of repentance and sin as I was doing that, because that's kind of an an illustration for getting out sin. And so I wanted to give you some illustrations, some things I learned that are biblical things. They're not things, it's not like in addition to the Bible, there's this extra source of revelation, weed pulling, but that uh, weed pulling reminded me of things that were in the Bible. Let me give you a few of these things that I learned by pulling weeds. First of all, acknowledging that there are weeds is not the same as pulling them. Acknowledging that there is sin in your life is not the same thing as actually repenting and dealing with it, okay? I actually think the more theology you know, the more you can accidentally be trapped in thinking that because you know what's happening cognitively, that you've actually dealt with the issue, okay? Let the reader understand. Next, being sad or angry that my yard has weeds in it is not the same thing as pulling them. Sometimes when it comes to repentance, we're just sad or we're angry or we're frustrated that we're having to deal with this or why do I still struggle or why is this my sin or whatever. That's not the same as dealing with it. Me saying, man, there's a bunch of weeds out there, that doesn't pull them. Me saying, man, I hate that there's a bunch of weeds out there, that doesn't pull them either. Neither of those are repentance, okay? Number three here, you have to get to the root. You have to get to the root, okay? That what I'm tempted to do when I'm pulling weeds is I'll grab one of the, and it looks like a cabbage. I mean, they're enormous. And so I grab it with two hands, and I'm like, and I just step up with like two handfuls of leaves. And I'm like, there, I pulled it. Guess what I'm going to have to do a week later? Repull it, okay? You have to get to the root. You have to get to that taproot, that source that's going to it. You don't have to know what the root is, but you have to get to the root when you pull it. I'll give you a helpful illustration. One of the things I uh, encourage our group leaders to do when teaching them how to counsel people is to try to figure out what is the root of that person's problem. So I'll give you an example. A husband and wife are fighting. A husband and wife are fighting. That's called marriage. And they're fighting, and I sit down with them, and I say, why are you guys fighting? And the wife says, well, my, my husband's never at home. I don't feel like he spends any time with me. And then I ask, I don't just stop there and say, okay, you need to be at home more. You have to go deeper. You have to ask why. And then you ask why. And then you ask why until you get to the root. So I say, okay, why are you not coming home? Why, why are you always gone? Well, I just started a new business, and so I'm just really busy, so I need to, need to be in there to get the business going. Why do you need to get the business going? Because I find my identity in my job. Ah, you see, I thought we were arguing about you as a couple just fighting in marriage, but really, there's a deeper issue going on, okay? I have found that if I have pride in my life and I just apologize for pride, nothing happens. The reason I have pride is because I don't think God loves me, and so I want to make myself look great so other people will. Ooh, that's a deeper issue, okay? 
So you want to pull out the root. Keep asking why until you get to the bottom of that root and then pull it out. Now, let me be very clear on something. You don't have to know the root to be healed of that thing. You get through problems by focusing on the solution, not the problem. Do I have to know everything about medicine to take medicine and be cured of whatever sickness I have? No. I just know I need to take the medicine. So there's this idea, and you need to be careful here because this is a popular idea in psychology and even in Christian counseling, that unless you know what that root issue is, you won't be able to grow away, you won't be able to get past it. That's not true. That's focusing on you and the problem, whereas you're to focus on Christ, the solution. You don't have to know everything about the problem to get through it. You just need to know about the solution, okay? So when I say get to the root, I don't mean God won't forgive you and you can't grow past it unless you do. I just mean that it can be helpful in getting past it to know what that root issue really is, okay? Next, timing matters. It's easier to pull the weeds out of soft ground. You want to know a great time when you should repent? During worship. You want to know a great time when you should repent? Right before communion. You want to know a great time when you should repent? After a sermon. You want to know a great time when you should repent? When you're in your car and you're praying. You want to know a great time when you should repent? Is when your heart is soft. Use those moments where your heart is soft to repent. It was much easier pulling weeds if I would do it after it would rain than if I just do it when it's you know, 60 days of no rain in a row because this is Texas. Next, I don't have to know everything about weeds to pull them. There are a lot of people who focus more on their sin than Christ's goodness. I see this a lot of times in groups because in in our community groups, we confess sins to one another. And so sometimes what happens is 90% of the time is spent talking about how awful we are and only 10% is talking about how great Christ is. What if we reverse those? What if the focus was, yes, we're on sinners, yes, we need to repent, but our ultimate identity is in Christ, so that needs to be the focus. You don't have to know everything about weeds to pull them. Next, for some of the weeds, I needed tools. I couldn't pull them by myself. Okay, there were some weeds that were so big, no matter how hard I tried to do it, I couldn't do it. So I had to get a shovel and make all these weird little divots in my yard and try to get out the weed and put the dirt back and throw the weed, and I would do all these other kind of things. I needed tools. That's what community is. That's what confession is. That's what counseling is. That's what some of these other things are. Some of these weeds, you need other people to help you pull them. Okay? You need the body. You need the church to help you pull them. Next, I learned that pulling weeds was tiring and hard work. Repentance is not easy. Repentance sometimes is really difficult. The greater you think you are, the more pride you have, the harder repentance will be for you. Okay? Some weeds were much bigger than others. Interesting. Some of our sins are uh, a little more entrenched than other ones. Some things, like I, I, let me tell you a sin I don't struggle with at all. Ready? Meth use. Just want to throw that out there. Some people, that is their biggest sin. That is the one thing where if they're like, God, please take this away. That is their biggest sin. For me, that's not a thing. But then you could switch it. The meth addict might be like, Zach, why are you anxious? Just stop thinking that. Yours isn't even chemical like mine. Just, just stop. And I'm like, but I can't. It's hard, right? So different people struggle with different sins. Different weeds are bigger than other ones, okay? Next, this is, a, this is an interesting one here. I have to keep pulling them. They come back over time. Don't assume that because you've dealt with some issue in your past, it will never come back again, okay? Again, I've been sometimes in community groups. I, I visit all the community groups, so I get to see and hear a bunch of different things. Uh, I was visiting a community group, and there's sometimes somebody will say, yeah, you struggle with that sin? I crushed that sin like 30 years ago. I never struggle with it anymore, and I think... Mm, you should pull that weed again, okay? So sometimes weeds come back, okay? You have to pull them regularly. Some of the weeds looked like regular grass. Some of the weeds were hidden. Some of the weeds I didn't even realize were weeds. I was just kind of walking through, and I was like, oh, that's just probably part of my sweet weed blend grass. But nope, 
It was a weed in grass's clothing, if you will, okay? And then lastly, it is much easier to pull them when they are small, okay? Repent of the small stuff before it becomes big stuff. If you are struggling with something, which we all are, you never lack sin, by the way. You only lack self-awareness for your sin. Uh, if you are struggling with something, repent of the small things before they become big things. It's much easier to pull out that weed when it's little than when it's this huge, nasty cabbage weed, okay? Every couple that I've counseled that has gone through some type of adultery or something like that, it didn't just start with them going out and committing adultery. It started way back when they were looking at pornography, and then way back before that when they were flirting with their secretary, and then way back before that when they were having fights in their marriage that they didn't deal with, okay? And so that's when you need to pull it. It's much easier to pull those weeds when they're small than when they're big. So repent of the small things before they become big things. It's much easier. It hurts much less. It's much less strenuous, okay? Jeffrey, the best repenter. Why don't you come up here and say some things that are smart? <laughs> 